Hello fellow saints and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over Alma chapters 39 through 42 today. And here Alma concludes his counsel with his sons, but he's talking specifically to Corianton. And Corianton was the one who went wayward and struggled as a result. And notice in this, as we discuss, how because of his sins, he's troubled by some basic doctrine. So we get to get a recap of some really important doctrine of the church. And also he feels like the Lord is a bit unjust. And we'll go over that in a little bit. So let's dive right into chapter 39. So what are some things that led to Corianton's problems? Well, he engaged in some sexual sins. And this is what led to those sexual sins and to those problems that he was having. In verse 1, it talks about how he didn't follow his brother's example. In verse 2, it talks about how he didn't heed his father's counsel and he boasted of his own strength. So there again, pride is a problem there. Verse 3, he talks about how he forsook the ministry. He left his place of strength and he went to Siron, which is a place of temptation. Verse 4 talks about how he followed others into sin, and how often do we do that? Go moving along, just going with the flow, doing what the world is doing. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about how bad sexual sin is. Now, all sin keeps us from progressing, but there are some sins that really are hard on our soul. Now, we know that sexual sins aren't the worst of these, um, and Alma's going to talk about that in just a second. He talks about denying the Holy Ghost as being the absolute worst. Uh, murder being up there as well. And this is what he says about sexual sin. He says, Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood or denying the Holy Ghost. For behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost when it once has had place in you, and ye know that ye deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. Yea, and whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness. So obviously murder and denying the Holy Ghost, once you've had that greater light, are the worst sins. But sexual sin is just up there. And this is what Elder Holland had to say about it. He said, in exploiting the body of another, which means exploiting his or her soul, one desecrates the atonement of Christ, which saved that soul and which makes possible the gift of eternal life. And when one mocks the sun of righteousness, one steps into a realm of heat, hotter and holier than the noonday sun. You cannot do so and not be burned. Please never say, who does it hurt? Why not a little freedom? I can transgress now and repent later. Please don't be so foolish and so cruel. You cannot with impunity crucify Christ afresh. Flee fornication, Paul cries, and flee anything like unto it. The Doctrine and Covenants adds, why? Well, for one reason, because of the incalculable suffering in both body and spirit endured by the Savior of the world, so that we could flee. We owe him something for that. Indeed, we owe him everything for that. Ye are not your own, Paul says. Ye have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In sexual transgression, the soul is at stake the body, and the spirit. We need to take this seriously, but also know that Christ's atonement does cover that. So we have to take it very serious and avoid sexual sin, but also know that we can overcome. And that's the best part about the story of Corianton. Although he failed and there's major consequences, we're going to go over those major consequences. At the end, there is redemption, but it does take work and it is hard. 
And the first step starts in verse 7 in what Alma is talking about. He says, And now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been guilty of so great a crime. I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. So he's taking that first step, that first hard step, admitting what he did was wrong and then working towards it. Verse 8 talks about repentance. And verse 9 says, Forsake your sins and cross yourself. They basically cut that out. That's what crossing means in that. In verse 10, he talks about following the example of righteous peers or siblings. And then in verse 11, he talks about something that can be very difficult. And that is that our conduct and actions have an effect on others. And he speaks at the end of this verse of the Zoramites who would not listen. When they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. And Joseph Fielding Smith had this to say. He said, I think the greatest crime in all this world is to lead men and women of the children of God away from the true principles. We see in the world today philosophies of various kinds, tending to destroy faith, faith in God, faith in the principle of the gospel. What a dreadful thing that is. The Lord says, if we labor all our days and save but one soul, how great will be our joy with him. On the other hand, how great will be our sorrow and our condemnation if through our own acts we have led one soul away from this truth. He who blinds one soul, he who spreads error, he who destroys through his teachings divine truth, truth that would, be, would lead a man to the kingdom of God and to its fullness, how great shall be his condemnation and his punishment in eternity. For the destruction of a soul is the destruction of the greatest thing that has ever been created. I'm not saying that Corianta necessarily was going around teaching false doctrine, but by his actions, obviously, the Zoramites picked up on the fact that uh, this wasn't really that important because here the prophet's son is going out and doing things that he shouldn't be doing. It's, it's a very precarious situation, and it's not necessarily fair to Corianton, but that was the reality of his decision and also his behavior. And now that Alma has really talked about these sins and laid the foundation for why they are so bad, he begins to talk about the repentance process and how we do that, some behaviors that we need to change. We need to turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, not seek for riches, to remember Christ and to seek ways to follow him. And this is another Elder Holland quote that talks about repentance. He says, To you is extended the peace and renewal of repentance available through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. In such serious matters, the path of repentance is not easily begun or painlessly traveled, but the Savior of the world will walk that essential journey with you. He will strengthen you when you waver. He will be your light when it seems most dark. He will take your hand and be your hope when hope seems all you have left. His compassion and mercy with all their cleansing and healing power are freely given to all who truly wish complete forgiveness and will take the steps that lead to it. And that is the key right there to take those steps towards repentance. Let Christ help you along that path. And for those who think that they are too far gone, let me read this quote that I love by Sister Joy D. Jones. She said, Let me point out the need to differentiate between two critical words, worth and worthiness. They are not the same. Spiritual worth means to value ourselves the way Heavenly Father values us, not as the world values us. Our worth was determined before we ever came to this earth. 
God's love is infinite, and it will endure forever. On the other hand, worthiness is achieved through obedience. If we sin, we are less worthy, but we are never worth less. We continue to repent and strive to be like Jesus with our worth intact. As President Brigham Young taught, the least, the most inferior spirit now upon the earth is worth worlds. No matter what, we always have worth in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Finally, Alma concludes his chapter by encouraging Corianton to go back to the ministry, to go back to preaching about Christ. But Alma knows that Corianton was struggling with some of the basic doctrine because his sins were keeping him back or hampering him. And these doctrines are discussed in chapters 40 through 42. In chapter 40, he starts with the resurrection. He admits that he does not know everything about the resurrection, but he knows that Christ will be the first and that everyone will be resurrected when God wants them to be resurrected. He talks about in verse 3, he talks about the mysteries will be unveiled, but only with diligent inquiry. In verse 6, he says, Now there must needs be a space betwixt the time of death and the time of the resurrection. Now, what we do in this time is a topic and a doctrine that is not readily discussed in the Christian world, but is pretty understood in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he says in verse 12, And then it shall come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous are received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, where they shall rest from all their troubles and from all care and sorrow. Well, what happens to those who weren't? Verse 13, And then it shall come to pass that the spirits of the wicked, yea, who are evil, for behold, they have no part nor portion of the Spirit of the Lord. For behold, they chose evil works rather than good. Therefore, the spirit of the devil did enter into them and take possession of their houses. And these shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And this because of their own iniquity being led captive by the will of the devil. So we know that there's a little bit of a judgment here, but this is not final judgment and this is not the final state of the soul. Now, it's kind of a side tangent. It's interesting in these verses, it talks about how in verse 8, that all is as one day with God and that time is only measured unto man. Here's what Joseph Smith had to say about it. He said, the great Jehovah contemplated the whole of the events connected with the earth pertaining to the plan of salvation before it rolled into existence. The past, the present, and the future were and are with him, one eternal now. He knew of the fall of Adam, the iniquities of the antediluvians, of the depth of iniquity that would be connected with the human family. He comprehended the fall of man and his redemption. He knew the plan of salvation and pointed it out. He was acquainted with the situation of all nations and with their destiny. He knows the situation of both the living and the dead and has made ample provisions for their redemption. And Elder Neal A. Maxwell said, God was redemptively at work long before his mortal time began on the earth, and he will still be at work even after mortal time is no more. Mercifully, things then will be done in God's own way, not ours, that then God's purposes, his patience, his power, and his profound love, which were at work long before time was, will also be at work even after time will be no more. These and other truths are among what Paul called the deep things of God. And of course, we know in the Doctrine and Covenants and also in the Pearl of Great Price that God's time is different than our time. 
But keep in mind that the Lord sees the beginning from the end, not like we do. His time is different. The other thing I want to cover real quickly is verse 11, where it talks about whether they be good or evil, they are taken home to that God who gave them life. And there's been some struggle in understanding this, because if we're taken back to God, isn't that a final judgment? Doesn't that determine the rest of our souls at that time? But I think this is one of the times where language can impede understanding that it hampers us a little bit. And this is what Joseph Fielding Smith said. He said, these words of Alma, chapter 40, verse 11, as I understand them, do not intend to convey the thought that all spirits go back into the presence of God for an assignment to take place of peace or a place of punishment and before him receive their individual sentence. Taken home to God, compare Ecclesiastes 12.7, simply means that their mortal existence has come to an end and they have returned to the world of spirits where they are assigned to take a place according to their works with the just or with the unjust, there to await the resurrection. Back to God is a phrase which finds an equivalent in many other well-known conditions. For instance, a man spends a stated time in some foreign mission field. When he is released and returns to the United States, he may say it's wonderful to be back home. Yet his home may be somewhere in Idaho or Utah or some other part of the West. And this is what President George Q. Cannon said. He said, this does not intend to convey the idea that they are immediately ushered into the personal presence of God. He evidently uses that phrase in a qualified sense. Regardless, we know that we the righteous go to paradise, while the unrighteous, or those whose works were evil, go to spirit prison. And this is, like I said, a temporary judgment, and we await the resurrection. Verse 21 talks about how we will be judged after the resurrection. It says, at the very end, to be brought to stand before God and be judged according to their works. In verses 22 and 23, some of the most important special doctrine about the resurrection, and that is that we'll be given a perfect body. It says, Yea, this bringeth about the restoration of those things of which has been spoken by the mouth of the prophets. And I love that word restoration, and we'll talk more about restoration in the next chapter as well. It says, The soul shall be restored to the body, and the body to the soul. Yea, and every limb and joint shall be restored to its body. Yea, even a hair of the head shall not be lost, but all things shall be restored to their proper and perfect frame. Joseph F. Smith said, Deformity will be removed, defects will be eliminated, and men and women shall attain to the perfection of their spirits, to the perfection that God designed in the beginning. It is his purpose that men and women, his children, born to become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, shall be made perfect physically as well as spiritually, through obedience to the laws by which he has provided the means that perfection shall come to all his children. And then in verse 25, the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of God, but the wicked are going to drink the dregs of a bitter cup. And why are they going to drink the dregs of a bitter cup? Because no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. We must be cleansed through the atonement of Jesus Christ, which will cleanse everyone who accepts it. In this verse, we're talking about those who completely reject the Savior, who are at his feet and refuse to accept his atoning sacrifice. These are the sons of perdition and those who will be cast into outer darkness. And now we move on to chapter 41. And this is what Alma in verse 2 calls the plan of restoration. 
This is what L. Tom Perry said. He said, the main purpose of earth life is to allow our spirits, which existed before the world was, to be united with our bodies for a time of great opportunity and mortality. The association of the two together has given us the privilege of growing, developing, and maturing as only we can with spirit and body united. With our bodies, we pass through a certain amount of trial in what is termed a probationary state of our existence. This is a time of learning and testing to prove ourselves worthy of eternal opportunities. It is all part of a divine plan our Father has for His children. So in this plan of restoration, in verses 3 and 3 through 5, it says, And it is requisite that with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works, and if their works were good in this life, and the desires of their hearts were good, that they should also at the last day be restored unto that which is good. And if their works are evil, they shall be restored unto them for evil. Therefore, all things shall be restored to their proper order, everything to its natural frame, mortality raised to immortality, corruption to incorruption, raised to endless happiness to inherit the kingdom of God, or to endless misery to inherit the kingdom of the devil, the one on one hand, the other on the other, the one raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness, or good according to his desires of good and the other to evil according to his desires of evil. For as he has desired to do evil all the day long, even so shall he have his reward of evil when the night cometh. And this is the law of the harvest. We reap what we sow. It's very simple. This is what President Lee said. It said, There is no truth more plainly taught in the gospel than that our condition in the next world will depend upon the kind of lives we live here. And that's why Alma makes this argument in verse 7. He says that they are their own judges whether to do good or do evil, right? We set, we're our own judges. We make the determination as to whether or not we're going to be righteous and restored to righteousness or wicked and restored to wickedness. And then in verse 10, we go over the great folly of man. He says, do not suppose because it has been spoken concerning restoration that ye shall be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. Verse 11, And now, my son, all men that are in a state of nature, or I would say in a carnal state, are in the gall of bitterness, and in the bonds of iniquity. They are without God in the world, and they have gone contrary to the nature of God. Therefore, they are in a state contrary to the nature of happiness. The nature of happiness is centered around doing spiritual things. It's centered around returning to our Father in heaven. And if we focus and work on the carnal things, if we let the body be in control and not the spirit in control of the body, then we are working contrary to the law of happiness. Then we are sowing evil and we will reap evil. But at our very core, and this is what Alma is saying in verses 11 and 12, at our very core, we are true and pure. We are truth. We are light. We are eternal. We are intelligence. And that goes back to what Sister Jones was saying. We are worth so much, which is why we need to strive to be worthy as well. In verse 14, Alma talks to his son about being merciful to receive mercy. And I think this is a really good lesson. It's difficult not to judge others and to not show mercy. It's much easier to be just and to look at things in black and white. But he says very clearly in verse 14, Therefore, my son, see that ye are merciful unto your brethren. Deal justly, judge righteously, and do good continually. 
And if ye do all these things, then ye shall receive your reward. Yea, ye shall have mercy restored unto you again. So here again, it is very clear that if we sow mercy, we will reap mercy. In verse 15, he says, For that which ye do send out shall return unto you again and be restored. Therefore, the word restoration more fully condemneth the sinner and justifieth him not at all. Elder Glenn L. Pace said, There are absolute truths of eternity. They do not change as a society drifts from them. No popular vote can change an absolute eternal truth. Legalizing an act does not make it moral. Don't be fooled by the argument everybody's doing it. Your spirit should be offended and your intelligence insulted by such reasoning. When all of the evidence is in, the world's graduate school of hard knocks will teach what you were taught in the kindergarten of your spiritual training. Wickedness never was happiness. And finally, in chapter 42, we get to the crux of the matter. He's gone over some great doctrine, and Corianton is still struggling. In verse 1, it talks about how he supposes that it is injustice that the sinner should be consigned to a state of misery. Basically, he's calling not fair. It's not fair that God would send us down here with all of these temptations, and that if we fall, then we're consigned to everlasting failure and destruction. And that's just not the case. And this is a lot of times what happens with people who get too far in their sinners is that they, they feel punished or they feel like God is unfair and then they completely turn their back on him and cut off their only chance of escape. Alma sees this in his son Corianton and tries to remedy it. And he talks about the fall and the purpose of the fall and why the fall was necessary and how to overcome the fall. In verses 2 through 3, Alma explains that a cherubim and a flaming sword was put to guard the weight of the tree of life to keep Adam from partaking of that fruit right after he had fallen and partaken of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was to create, as he says right here in verse 4, a probationary time or a time to repent and to serve God before he partakes of the fruit of the tree of life. Because if he had partaken of that fruit right away, then he would have been judged at that moment. That's when the note comes due, and he was not prepared. He needed to gain access through Jesus Christ. He needed to use the atonement. And that's what he talks about in verses 5 through 7, is about partaking of the fruit of the tree of life when we are ready, when we've worked towards it, when we've walked the straight and narrow path and held tight to that iron rod. Before that, we cannot do it. We need access, and we need access through Jesus Christ. And that access comes because of the atonement of Jesus Christ and is dependent upon our ability to repent. In verse 15, it says, And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy, to appease the demands of justice, that God might be a perfect just God, and a merciful God also. We have to have an atonement, and we also have to have time to repent. It takes time. It takes effort. Now, for those who think it is unjust, this is what Elder Maxwell had to say. He said, the justice and mercy of God will have been so demonstrably perfect that at that final judgment, there will be no complaints, including from those who once questioned what God had allotted in the mortal framework. So I believe that once we get there, we will know all of our actions and what they led to, we will understand the atonement greater at that point. But in order for all of this to happen, there has to be opposites. Verses 16 talks about 
how repentance could not come unto men except there were a punishment, which also was eternal as the life of the soul, should be affixed opposite to the plan of happiness, which was as eternal also as the life of the soul. So in order for repentance to exist, there actually has to be a punishment. Verses 17 through 28, he summarizes the plan of salvation, the plan of restoration beautifully. And he talks about how mercy cannot rob justice and justice cannot completely abolish mercy. And this is why the Savior existed. And we've gone over that many, many times in not only this podcast, but in the doctrine of the church. And I would encourage you to really read deeply and to study more and to dive into this topic as much as you can and as often as you can. But at the end of the day, we need to trust that plan and use the sins that we have committed as a springboard to repentance and to become more righteous. Verse 29, Alma says, And now, my son, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more, and only let your sins trouble you with that trouble which shall bring you down unto repentance. And this is what President Kimball had to say. He said, How wonderful that God should endow us with this sensitive yet strong guide we call a conscience. Someone has aptly remarked that conscience is a celestial spark which God has put into every man for the purpose of saving his soul. Certainly, it is the instrument which awakens the soul to consciousness of sin, spurs a person to make up his mind to adjust, to convict himself of the transgression without soft-pedaling or minimizing the error, to be willing to face facts, meet the issue, and pay necessary penalties. And until the person is in this frame of mind, he has not begun to repent. To be sorry is an approach. To abandon the act of error is a beginning. But until one's conscience has been sufficiently stirred to cause him to move in the matter, so long as there are excuses and rationalizations, one has hardly begun his approach to forgiveness. This is what Alma meant in telling his son Coriantum that none but the truly penitent are saved. So what must we do? Verses 30 and 31, he says, be humble and go back to preaching the word. And I'll finish with Alma's thoughts in verse 31. It says, And now, my son, go thy way, declare the word with truth and soberness, that thou mayest bring souls unto repentance, that the great plan of mercy may have claim upon thee. And may God grant unto you, even according to my words. Amen. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest ways to enact repentance in ourselves is to preach the gospel, to help bring other souls unto the truth, because as we do so, we lift each other up. It is my hope and prayer that each of us will study these doctrines a little bit deeper, that we will come to a greater understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that we will seek ways to repent, that we will use our sins to improve ourselves and not just to beat us down and drag us down. May we all apply the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and draw closer unto him is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or want to discuss any of the topics we went over, please do not hesitate to email me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or to send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thank you and have a blessed day.